Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Evan with the message. Um, this morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Galatians, specifically in chapter 5, starting at verse 26. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to that passage again, Galatians 5, verse 26, um, and we'll get there in just a moment. Um, in some ways, this is a follow-up to Derek's message from last week. If you weren't here, don't worry. It'll be like user-friendly. I'm not going to like throw stuff at you and test you on stuff you haven't taken. Um, but you could also go back on the church podcast and listen to the message from last week or any of the messages from this series or any of our other series. So feel free to do that. And his sermon last week was, how do I know if I'm, gonna, if I'm doing the right thing? And he laid out what it means to surrender to life in the Spirit and to have conviction as we follow Christ's lead. And today we're going to pick up the conversation to a degree, asking the question, how do I make the world better? How do I make the world better? This is a question not just in our church circles, but in kind of like, I don't know, human circles. Like lots of people are asking this question, how do I make the world better? Um, but before we just dive in, um, I want to start with Scripture, and then we'll pray, and then uh, I will share some thoughts. So, I'm in Deuteronomy. That's not going to help me at all. Um, so, I'm going to come over here to Galatians, where my little bookmark is. Galatians, chapter 5. I think I said starting at verse 26. We're starting at verse 16. Excuse me on that. Starting at uh, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, 
and envying one another. Friends, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. Father, as we gather this morning as brothers and sisters, would you speak to us? Would you instruct us? Would we be able to sit at your feet and to hear your word? This morning, would you shape us more into the image of your son, Jesus. Would you ready us for life in the kingdom? Would you energize us for the mission that is ahead of us? And God, would you just love us this morning? We need your love. I need your love, God. Father, would you... Would you bless the preparation that I have done? Would you fill in the gaps where I am lacking? And through it all, God, may I just disappear. May I go quiet, Father, and may you come forth and speak to the hearts of these people. That they might hear you and know your ways. Father, we bless you. We exalt you. We lift you high. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. So we are tackling this idea of goodness today. Goodness. We're working in reverse order through the fruits of the Spirit, if you haven't caught on. Um, and, and we come today to this topic of goodness, which led us, as we plotted out this series and as we talked about questions that, that we are asking in the church and that people in the wider world are asking around us, we settled on this question of how do we make the world better? How do we make the world better? At first, I didn't want this one. I was like, mm, nope, that's not me. I looked at it and I said, no, I'm out. I'm out for that one. And then Derek and Jerry were like, we're going to London that week. And I was like, okay, I guess that's the one that I got. And the more I reflected on it, the more I, I recognized that God has prepared me for this topic. Because I have spent, and, and please, friends, hear this as, as humility and not as a brag, but I've spent a good portion of my life trying to make the world better. I would say most of my life has been dedicated to making the world a better place. I remember as a kid participating in these love your neighbor projects at my church. Um, we would help old ladies clean up their yards or you know, go in and help them clean their houses or whatever. And so, so even at a very young age, I was, I was cleaning things up and, and helping people. 
In high school, I volunteered, I don't know if you're familiar with World Vision, the organization. We would we'd go to World Vision a couple times a year and pack boxes and, and, and organize things and, and so that it could get shipped off to different places that had needs. And that was one of many projects that I did in high school. In college, I was part of a, uh, a scholarship program called the Bonner Scholars Program. Has anybody heard of this? No, okay, it's a niche thing, it's cool. But I was part of this group called the Bonner Scholars Program. Um, and it was a scholarship program founded by a wealthy real estate couple um, that, that scholarship students for college in exchange for community service hours and education. And so I literally did thousands of hours of community service in college to earn this scholarship. And so um, between um, doing these community service uh, projects and, and volunteering with these local organizations, I also learned best practices in the community development field. I spent many, many hours listening to, to speakers and educators and lecturers who would, who would talk about their fields of expertise as far as what does it mean to, to serve people, to make the world a better place to live. And upon graduating from college, I moved to Jackson, Mississippi. I loved it, mostly for the barbecue and the people. The heat was stupid, but the barbecue made up for the heat. So I moved to West Jackson, Mississippi, where I worked for the Spencer Perkins Center for Reconciliation and Development. The center focused on rebuilding the neighborhood directly surrounding the center, um, educating outside groups on the history of the civil rights movement, and working towards reconciliation, both between people and God. That was the focus. In fact, that's the world that I almost ended up in. I was working down there, and my life seemed to be moving toward a trajectory of, of making the world a better place via the nonprofit sector, when God stepped in and redirected my path and brought me back up north for campus ministry. But while I was there, I learned so much about the efforts that are taking to make the world a better place. And in truth, the nonprofit sector is, is an economy. It's a world all of its own. All of its own. Americans are giving, I just, I read this on Axios, uh, Americans are giving at the lowest levels in years, okay? Lowest levels in years. And they're still giving $500 billion to the nonprofit sector. That's billions with a B. $500 billion. Billions and billions of dollars are being poured into these efforts to make the world a better place. Trying to make the world a better place can be a full-time job. In fact, I know there's people in the room that have some of these jobs, working with people, seeking to improve life conditions and to make the world a better place. You can get a master's degree in nonprofit management. You can do deep study in how to make the world a better place. 
And as I have said before, this isn't just Christians. It's not just a bunch of Christians running around doing this stuff. There are people from all walks of life seeking to make the world a better place. I looked up real quick. I was like, what are some of the weirdest nonprofits in existence? I found, look it up sometime. It's really wild. I found one that is specifically designed to help tall people. I kid you not. There's scholarships. If you're you're tall, like a certain height, you can get a scholarship to go to school. Yeah, it's a true story. Um, I found one. It was called the 501st Legion. Does anybody get that reference? Some of my Star Wars nerds get that reference. 501st Legion, stormtroopers. There's a group of role-playing, like people that do role-play as stormtroopers that, that focus on doing humanitarian work and good deeds. They just get together, I guess, in stormtrooper costumes, and they want to show that the dark side isn't all that bad, I guess. I don't, I don't know. There's some really, really wild ones out there. And I... I would imagine that not all of these people follow Jesus. In fact, I can promise you that not everyone who is seeking to make the world a better place is following Jesus. Why? Because I've met them. I know them. There are people in our city that are like, "Mm, yeah, I don't really get down with the Jesus thing, but I want to help people. This is a question that seems to resonate in the heart of every human being, at least to some degree. I'm sure there's some people out there where it doesn't. They just want to watch the world burn. There's another reference for some of you comic book nerds. Yes, thank you, thank you. But why? Why? Why would we want to make the world a better place? If it really is survival of the fittest, why would I want to go out of my way to help someone else? Shouldn't I be gathering my resources, making myself stronger? Why would anyone go out of their way to help others? And one of the things that deeply strikes me as we approach this question is the sheer unfathomable nature of the problem. As I said, I've spent most of my life trying to make the world a better place. And friends, let me tell you, I'm not sure I've made a dent in things. I don't know if I've done anything at all. The truth is hundreds of billions of dollars are given to charity each and every year, and yet it seems like at best we are barely scraping the surface of the world's problems. And at worst, we're making the problems worse by creating systems of injustice and inequality that keep people dependent on hands out, uh, excuse me, on handouts or suppressed by systems that don't value them. So, is it really worth the effort to be a good person? To practice charity? And then even if we decide it's worth doing, where do we start? How should we spend our time? Is it all worth it? Or should we just put our money back in our pockets and go about our daily lives? I think to answer that question biblically, we have to have a framework that is different. A framework that gives us motivation and hope to do the work of goodness. And in order to develop that framework... I gotta watch my time here. I got a lot going on. So, 
watching. I want to start in Genesis 1. Derek was here last week. If you want to open up to Genesis 1, you can. I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit. We're going to start in the beginning, okay? I'm going to start reading. You can follow along if you'd like, or you can, uh, you can just listen. In the beginning, start at the beginning. That's a good place to start. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be a light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning on the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning on the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Are you you picking up where I'm going with this? Okay, good. We're going to keep going. And God said, let the earth sprout. Oh, did I read that already? I read that already. Let's skip down. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens and to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Thank you, Gary. Gary's following along. And there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. So you get the pattern. You you see where I'm going with this. God creates something. And then he stands back and he looks at it and he says, that's good. I see that that is good. And if you're a science-minded person and you're struggling with this or, or whatever, this, you know, we can talk about that at another point. What I want us to see is this theological anchoring that God is looking at his creation and he's saying, that's good. I like that. And it's good. 
I'm going to skip down to verse 26 if you're following along. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock. And over all of the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Including bugs. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every, amen, thank you for food, Lord. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. You see, we hear this refrain that echoes over and over and over again. That God, after creating something, stands back, looks at what it is he has made and says, that is good. That is good. And then when he is done, when he has finished this work of creation, he stands back and he beholds everything that he has made. He looks at the entirety of it and he looks at it and he says, that is very good. It's not just good, it is very good. Friends, sometimes we look at the world and we're like, oh, this is such a bad place. What a terrible place. We can't wait to escape this place and get to that other place where we get to go. But if you look at the scriptures, what we understand from Genesis 1 is that there is, there there at least was something inherently good about this world that God has created. That the rocks and the trees and the birds and the bees, something about them was very good. start preaching there is a goodness about the world in the very beginning so what happens how did we get from that to this because I know y'all can walk out that door and go home and turn on the news and you're like "Mm, that's not what he was talking about there's something wrong in that world what happened if the creation was good at the very beginning Why is it now not? The biblical answer is human sin. We betrayed God. We took things into our own hands. We said, God, and and Derek elaborated this on a a lot on this last week, if you want to go back and listen to that sermon. We said, you know what, God, we get your way, that's whatever. We're going to do it our way. We're going to live life on our terms. And look where that's gotten us. We are where we are because of the decisions that we've made 
to do things our own way. So to tackle this, this kind of question, this juxtaposition of a good creation that is now not, I want to introduce us to a couple of con- concepts. Um, we want to, we're going to talk about something called structure and direction. I'm going to get a little philosophical on you. Um, so if, if I can have that slide thrown up there, we're going to talk about structure and direction. Structure, um, and a lot of this, let me, let, me, let me cite myself, a lot of this comes uh, f- to me by way of a guy named Al Walters who wrote a book, Creation Regained. Um, and many others who are, uh, have, have read his stuff and read others like him and have passed it on to me. So I am, I am a recipient of goodness and passing it along. So structure, says Walters, denotes the essence of a creaturely thing. The kind of creature it is by virtue of God's creational law. Okay, So structure, the creation is a thing. It is a thing. This microphone is a structure, okay? And, and by creational nature, it is intended for something. Someone invented the microphone for a purpose. It is, it is just a structure. Or, I mean, maybe that's selling it short, but, it, I mean, microphones are pretty cool. I like being loud. So we have a structure that denotes the essence of a creaturely thing. So structure is simply the essence. A coffee cup, a shirt, a microphone, these things have an essence that is neutral, quote-unquote, so to speak. Direction, by contrast, refers to a sinful deviation from that structural ordinance and or a renewed conformity to it in Christ. So direction is either a a deviation away from something's intended purpose or it is conformity to God's intended purpose for that thing. For instance, if I use this microphone to deliver the word of God to you, which I'm not, don't worry, it's off, to deliver the word of God for you, I'm using it for its creational ordinance. If I take this microphone and I chuck it at someone's head because they're not listening, That is a sinful deviation from its intended purpose. Yeah? Are we following? I thought so. Don't worry, I'm not going to chuck it at anybody. Those things cost money. So direction is a deviation away from or a conformity back to God's original intended purpose for that thing. Take a car, for instance. A car is a structure. What I use it for is its direction. For instance, if I use my car to get to and from church where I do my job, or to and from campus where I do my job, that is a good thing, and it is living into its created purpose. If I use my car as a getaway vehicle in a crime, that is a sinful deviation from its intended purpose. Although I don't actually, was it... Model T, was it Ford? Did he invent that? I don't know who invented the car. Maybe they did want to get away from crime faster. I don't know. So, you know, but. So, so there's a lot of nuance in this. We could, we could if you want to, we could, we could talk about this for a long time. I, I, you know, we can get into the weeds on this stuff. But what I want you to understand is this basic idea of the structures of creation that have an intended direction coming from God. 
the creation has an intention to it. God created the world with intention. And sin causes a deviation from that intended purpose. Sin takes us away from God's will for our life. We often think of God's will as like, oh, that big, bad meanie, he wants me to do something I don't want to do. He made us. He's like, listen, guys, I just want you to do what you were always supposed to do. Like, I want you to be the kind of, I want you to be the most human you can ever be. Is that such a bad thing? I don't think so. I'm getting off track. I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach. All structures, including you and I, are moving toward how God created us to be, to function, or we are moving away from our intended purpose. All things. Walter says later in his book, uh, the everyday components of our lives, our family, our sexuality, our thinking, our emotions, our work, are the structural things that are involved and at stake in the pool of sin and grace. The directional battle does not take place on a spiritual plane above creaturely realities, but rather in and for the concrete reality of the earthly creation. I want, I want you to hear what I'm saying here. I am not saying there isn't a spiritual realm where a battle is going on. The Bible says that that is true. But oftentimes, we just kind of like surrender up to that thing. We're like, oh yeah, the world's a bad place and we're just, we're fighting that spiritual battle of prayer and like forget the world. But what Walters is saying is that the push and pull of grace over the structures doesn't happen just in that spiritual realm, but it happens in the concrete realities of life that you and I face every single day. I know the battle of sin and grace over caring for my body every time I want to eat my 14th Oreo. Every single time. I'm like, God, I know this is not my intended purpose, but dang, Java chip is so good. Some of my students know Java chip. We had that the other night. Hoo-wee. That was good. We are in a battle for the direction of the creation to either allow it to continue to flow into a a direction that is a sinful deviation from what God has always intended it to be, or to join God in his redemption and restoration of all things. That is what we are doing. Let's look at some more scriptures. Romans 8. You can follow along or not. I'm going to read them here and and walk through them pretty quickly. But Romans 8, 9 through 23, this is one of my favorites. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation... Not just parts of the creation. The whole creation. I lost my place. Has been groaning. There it is. Together in the pains of childbirth 
until now. Friends, for the longest time, I had no idea exactly what the pains of childbirth were. And then my wife had a kid, and I understand this verse very differently now. The creation waits in the pain of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. There's a distinction there, the creation and us. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. The creation waits eagerly for its redemption, longing for all things to be restored to how they were always intended to be. Paul is saying all things have been subjected to sin. And, and all things are eager for them to be made new again. Has something in your life ever broken? Like your phone probably is, is probably a big one. I've had this happen to me. My phone broke. And you wait eagerly for it to be repaired. Because you're like, man, I don't know how to exist without this thing. Which is a sermon for another day. But we wait eagerly for something to be redeemed, restored, brought back to life. The creation waits. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created, or maybe more appropriately put, recreated in Christ for good works. I have a friend, Bob Robinson. He has done extensive work on this concept in these verses. And he, he argues that this passage, um, or maybe it's one of the ones, but he, he argues that this, this idea of good works should actually be translated good work. We have been created to do good work. That was what we were always intended for, was to do good work. And in, in Jesus Christ, who redeems us from sin, we are recreated to do that same work, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. This isn't a reaction. This isn't like a spur-of-the-moment thing, like, oh, maybe I'll give five bucks. God has been preparing you for good work. He had that in mind. That was his intention. Micah 6, 8. I'm jumping. I'm jumping verses. But it's good. Micah 6, 8. He has told you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. You could summarize this verse as saying, we are to humbly work for the restoration of all things while treating each other and the creation as God would have us treat it. He's told you. He's told you what he wants. He wants justice. He wants kindness and humility as you walk with him. This is your purpose. Congratulations, you now have the meaning of life. Ta-da! 
excuse me, Titus 2, 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in, this, in, in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Redemption from sin is redemption to good work. We have been redeemed so that we can be about the work of goodness. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them. So if you, are, if you are rich or you think you're rich, I hereby charge you, according to Timothy, not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. God's call is for humans to do good and to be rich in good work because doing so aligns us with God's original intention for all creation. And it prepares us for the life that we will live fully in the kingdom of God one day. So our calling is clear. We are to be about living in the world as God always intended for us to live. We are to be about the good work that God has called us to from the beginning of time. That is our calling. Now, I want to say real quick, uh, and I will address this more in a moment, this is not a works-based gospel. If, if, you're, if, if that's coming to your mind, put a pin in it, but that's not what we're talking about here. You're not going to earn this. So we're called to this good work. So how do we figure out the specifics? How do we know how to make the world better? We've established that we are to make the world better, that the creation waits and we are to participate in the good work that God has called us to. So how do we know what that looks like? How do we know what we're supposed to do? Very quickly, three things. In order to make the world better, we are guided by Scripture. The scripture gives us an understanding of God and his character. As we read, this, we read the scriptures to have the story of God woven into our being, and as it becomes a part of who we are, we will naturally begin to live out the way of Jesus in the world. We are guided by scripture. Scripture is our guide. It is our measuring stick. We compare all things to it. We are also guided by the Spirit, Derek talked about this last week. We have to lean on the Holy Spirit for wisdom and guidance and inspiration as we walk through life. And as we walk in step with the Spirit, listening for his voice and surrendering to his will, the ways of the kingdom 
will become more and more evident. Not only that, but they will become our natural inclinations. We begin to want more of what God wants. Begin to become more of the people that God has intended us to be. Have you ever hung out with a crowd of people and, and they were interested in something that you really weren't interested in? You were like, I don't, I don't really get this. I don't understand it. But then the more you started hanging out with them, the more you were like, oh, okay, all right, I understand this. And then you found yourself one day like, oh, man, I love this. This is great. Happened with my buddy Brendan and I in college. He liked this band called the Avett Brothers. Anybody? Avett Brothers? Anybody? 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 Ah, oh, sad. It's okay. He loved them, and I was like, they're dumb. I really don't like them at all. They're stupid. And I hung out with them more, and I heard them more, and I listened to them more. And I was like, now I want to listen to the Avett Brothers because, A, they're amazing, but, B, because I, I understand now. As we, as we walk in step with the Spirit, the Spirit will teach us how to do the things, and it will make us want the things more. So we are guided by Scripture. We are guided by the Spirit. And this is one of my favorites. We're, we're guided by study. By study. Especially my college students. Listen up. The creation itself gives us an understanding of the way things are meant to function. If God created the world and we study the world, we will maybe begin to understand how God created the world. Right? That's logic. I learned that in college. Yet, it has also been distorted by sin. And therefore, we study God's good creation to discover how it is God meant it to function and the ways in which it has become distorted. Um, I'm, I'm going to shout out one of my students that's not here today. Um, uh, one of my students, Deanna, um, is a nursing major, and she's in the process of studying the body and, and, and discovering how it's supposed to function. And she's also learning all of the ways it functions improperly. All the ways, we have some more nursing majors in the back. So yeah, shout out to you guys as well. Um, all the ways that it functions improperly. So knowing these things allows them to treat the human body as it was meant to be treated. And to restore it to the state that God intended when he created it. So by studying the human body, which the Bible isn't really a textbook on the human body and how like organs work and those sorts of things. But by studying the human body, nursing majors can discover, oh, this is how blood is supposed to flow because the body is healthy when it does that. This is probably not how it's supposed to flow because when it doesn't flow that way, people die. So how do we get it to function the way that it was meant to function? This is the work of goodness, friends, of restoring the creation back to what it was intended to be and do. So our calling is clear. The creation was good. At the beginning of all things, God stood back and he looked at the creation and he said, this is very good. And yet it has been distorted by sin. The good structure of creation has been distorted by sin, and now we see all of the evil in the world, the bad. And our calling is to join God in what he is doing to restore the creation to its original direction. 
the motivation for goodness is because this is what God does. And how we do that is through Scripture, by the Spirit's power, and by studying the world around us. But that leaves us with a predicament. That's, that's, that's all really great. In fact, that's what like drew me into Jesus in college. I was like, man, this is really great. I love this. I have purpose in life now. But there's, there's a problem, and that is that the world doesn't seem to be getting any better. As I said, I've done this work most of my life, and I'm not sure I've really made a dent. And I've been reading the news a lot more, and at, friends, as I read the news, I'm like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that we're getting anywhere. I don't know that we're making progress. There is a, a, a cyclical nature of helping. You, you help somebody, and oftentimes they end up right back where they came from. And we're tempted to lose hope. Like, man, I wanted that person to become all that God wanted them to be, but, but they're just doing the thing again. And that's frustrating. And there is a twisted reality of, of, of hurtful helpers in a couple of different ways. There are those who just blatantly take advantage. They just take advantage of people who are in need. There are many churches that do this. Let's, let's talk about the truth, friends. There are churches that are like, here, you give us your money, and blessings will flow at you from God. Friends, that's, that's a twistedness of helping. And there are, there are good-intentioned people, people who, who desperately want to help and to make things better. They want to make the world better, and yet, in the very act of helping, they make things worse. I read an article, and this was years ago, friends, so don't hold me to this, but it was, a, it was about Tom's shoes. If you're familiar with Tom's, that they, they give a pair of shoes for every shoe you buy. And it sounds like a really great concept, like, sweet, I get a pair of shoes, and, and somebody in need gets a pair of shoes. That's helping. That's really good. But the reality is all of the shoes were being made in c- different countries from where the people who were getting the shoes were. So the shoemakers in the country were going out of business. And they were like, great, everybody has shoes now, but there's also much more unemployment because there's... Nobody making shoes anymore in those countries. Helping is complicated. And our best intentions sometimes just don't work out. So do we give up? Do we just wait? Or we're like, you know what, we'll just wait till Jesus comes back, he'll fix it. Friends, the and this is where this is not a, a, a works gospel. I'm not saying, hey, work yourself into heaven. That's not what I'm saying here is, hey, if you do enough good things, you know, God will be proud of you. What I'm saying is that God has rescued you from sin so that you can join him on mission. So that you can be about the good work that he has called you to. But friends, hear this. The only hope that we have is that Jesus will turn the tide. The only hope we have is that Jesus has already turned the tide. That he has defeated death. But that one day he will return and he will make all things new. He will finish the job. So what do we do with that? One of my uh, favorite artists, and the worship team can, can come up as I close. One of my favorite artists is a guy named John Mark McMillan. Um, He addresses this in one of his songs. Um, The lyrics in this song, uh, The Road, the Rocks, and the Weeds, I think I've shared it before. 
He says this, he says, shall I plant sequoias or revel in the soil of a crop I know I will never live to see? I don't know if you guys have ever seen the redwoods, the sequoias. I I saw them once in the middle of the night. We were driving through California, and I just remember driving through the dark and going, whoa, that's huge. Do Do we commit ourselves to the work of planting seeds that we may never get to see the fruit of? Do we commit ourselves to the good work God has called us to, knowing that we may never know the outcome I say yes and John Mark McMillan says yes he says then sow my body to my maker and my soul unto my savior and spread me on the road and the rocks and the weeds we live out the ways of the kingdom living into the goodness of God our Savior, because in doing so, we erect signposts that point to a better life, a fuller life that is only found in Jesus in the ways of his kingdom. We do this in hope, in faith, that one day God will make all things new. God's Spirit has been in the business of bringing life, beauty, and goodness to chaotic, broken places since the beginning. And the answer to why we should practice goodness is that it is simply doing what God is doing. That's who God is. He wants us to become what we were always intended to be. And part of that is to practice the way of Jesus now. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.